2.99. Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Palo Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. Dad, visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Well, around Radio City, this is kind of a big day because, as we've been telling you, there is a move coming up, and today is the last day for... The non-content people, all the people behind the scenes, our marketing staff, our sales departments, our traffic departments, everybody other than the people that are directly on the air are moving to our new offices. And so today is the last day. I think your occupancy is tomorrow, right? Charlie, you're shaking your head at me. Yeah, so it's. It's it's coming up in the next day or so. So what they have going on right now, even though they forget about us on our people, there's like a hot dog lunch that, that's going on. And so that that's somewhere upstairs. But nobody thinks about us, you know. So, Charlie, if you get a break, I'll stay here. You get a chance to run up and at least get yourself the hot dog. But um, it is it's it's really been strange after as i was talking to ryan record just a few minutes ago i mean i've been i've been here since the summer of 1998 and it really is kind of odd to see all the boxes go and everything just just moving out and i think it's going to be really peculiar tomorrow or, or monday to, to come in and find that there's just a handful of us left in the building and then of course we're the rest of us our content team the on-air people we're making the move i think september 26th which is a monday is going to be our first day of broadcasting from the avenue which is the old grand avenue mall so it's going to be very interesting and the fun thing is if you happen to be downtown during the course of the day and you come into the mall we're you'll be able to see us so we're at one end of kind of the food court and there's glassed in studios and things like that so it's definitely going to be the end of an era and different and you're just starting to kind of see that and i've i've been sort of just kind of ignoring the fact that it was going to happen. But you do get a little bit wistful as you see all the people heading out. And, of course, we'll, we'll see our teammates in a month or so and see all the boxes and see all the pictures coming down from off the wall. It uh, is sort of the end of an era, but I think it's a really positive thing. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover on today's show, so let's get right to it. Over the course of the last two days, we've spent a lot of time talking about the impact of Joe Biden's decision to wave a magic wand and make taxpayers pay, they estimate, somewhere around three, $330 billion to relieve $10,000 of student loan debt for people who have student loans. And the limits, of course, are you can qualify for $10,000 relief if you make up to 125000 bucks. And if you're married and your joint income is two hundred and fifty grand, well, you each qualify for $10,000. Now, you can make a strong argument that, I don't know, people who are, are working, um, if you're making $125,000, do you really need the rest of the taxpayers to bail you out for ten grand? And so we, we discussed this extensively, and I, I understand that Biden thinks that this is going to be a huge win because it's going to help mobilize the youth vote to turn out in large numbers. I, I personally, 
I think he has made a bad miscalculation. And I would say, again, the impact and feedback we've been getting, I would say 75 to 80 percent of the people recognize that this is just incredibly, incredibly unfair and unnecessary and inflationary. I think this might have a boomerang effect politically. But I, I don't want to discuss for this segment, the merits of that decision. We, we've talked about that extensively. I want to talk about where Joe Biden gets off thinking he can do this. Because last time I checked, we, we have, we have a, a system of checks and balances in this country. You have an executive branch. You have a legislative branch. You have a judicial branch. And they all have certain powers. We do not have kings in this country. Now, I understand, particularly starting with Barack Obama, then running through Donald Trump, and then now continuing with Joe Biden, you have presidents who think that they they don't need Congress, that they should just be able to do whatever they want to do without getting approval from Congress. And so I and this is this is a bipartisan beef because. Obama did it a lot, Trump did it, and, and Biden has, is taking it to, to new levels because he knows he can't get something like this through Congress. You would not have support in Congress for this. So Biden simply decided, I'm not going to ask Congress. Now, it's interesting because a year ago, Nancy Pelosi said the president doesn't have the authority to, to cancel student loan debt. He, he, just, he just doesn't. She was very definitive. And you know what? She was absolutely Correct. Joe Biden himself has said on multiple occasions that he did not believe he had the authority to universally and unilaterally cancel student debt. He can make the proposal. He can send it to Congress. If Congress passes it, he can sign it. But he doesn't have the power to do it. Well, we've got midterm elections coming up. Joe Biden wants to deliver for some of his constituency. Joe Biden doesn't care what happens with inflation. And so he has decided that he is going to act as a king and he is going to do this. Here's what his justification is. Um, there, There is something called the National Emergencies Act of 1944 which allows presidents to have certain powers that they otherwise do not have to deal with national emergencies. Now, typically, that has been interpreted to be a time of war. But there there are, there can be health emergencies as well. After the uh, tax on September 11th, 2001, Congress passed something called the HEROES Act, which gives the Secretary of Education the power to waive certain rules regarding student loan financial programs in times of war or national emergency. And again, this was when we were fighting the, the terrorist war in Afghanistan. It was in the aftermath of September 11th, and it was primarily war. So you have these powers, but that was 20 years ago. Joe Biden, in claiming his ability to make $10,000 in student loans for everybody who doesn't make at least $125,000 go away, he says that he has the power to do this because this is either a time of war or national emergency. The national emergency being the COVID epidemic which happened in April of 2019. In other words, you know, over two years ago. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This 
is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it is just absolutely ridiculous. The COVID outbreak was the original justification in April of 2019 by Donald Trump for suspending student loan payments for X number of months. It was then continued on multiple occasions by by Joe Biden. But I would argue it is ridiculous to assume that we are still in a time of national emergency because of COVID. Is COVID here? Well, yeah, COVID's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. Does this mean that we are now going to be in a perpetual state of national emergency because you've got COVID, which entitles presidents to essentially behave as kings? Now, I think there's going to be a lawsuit. And I think at the end of the day, once this gets to the to the United States Supreme Court, they are going to find that Joe Biden does not have the authority to do this. So my advice to be would be to everybody who thinks they're in line for ten thousand dollars. I would not spend that money yet. But the bigger point is, does it trouble you that you have a president who thinks that we can essentially say there is a perpetual emergency to allow them to do things like this. Will the COVID emergency ever end? I mean, it's is this a national emergency we're facing with now? Now, you can make the argument maybe in April of 2019, maybe in July of 2019 when the federal government came in and ordered everything closed, where people were, businesses were shut down, where people, because of orders of the government, were put out of business. You know, maybe you can argue two years ago that there was a national emergency. Are we still in a period of national emergency, or is this just an end-run way to try to accomplish something that, in this case, Biden knows he could never get through Congress? 855-616-1620. And, and isn't it a bit scary that you have a president that's taking this sort of power? We discuss in a moment. Yeah, a couple of people pointing out brain freeze. COVID, I lost a year. COVID 2020, not COVID, not 2019. But that doesn't change the fact. You, if you want to argue that there was a national emergency caused by COVID in April of 2020, fine. fine. You had the government coming in, the government essentially telling businesses you have to shut down. You cannot operate. You cannot go out. We are closing you down. You had major blows to the economy. So I, I, I understand that national emergency. But as one of our texters says, when government is given extra power in an emergency, there will always be an emergency. This is the justification that Joe Biden is using in August of 2022. We've got a national emergency. Because of COVID, what, where where does that come from? I mean, a national emergency. I mean, you know, give me a break. The bottom line is, you know, we're we have pretty much is COVID with us. Yes, COVID is going to be with us on a regular basis. Unemployment among college graduates right now is at a near record low, two percent. There is no national emergency, and to try to claim there is, I think, is just incredibly insulting. You do not have the power to do this. 855-616-1620. Jeff, it's not only frightening that we have a president who thinks he has the right to do this, it is equally concerning that the president and others do not weigh the consequences of constantly giving out free money 
over and over again. People need to wake up and understand that so-called free money is what has caused all of us to be in a worse situation economically. Well, maybe not everybody, but many, many people. But again, that's that goes to the merits of this. My point is you do not have the authority to do it, and it should be scary to all of us that you have presidents who think that they are kings. Now, a couple of people are texting in, and they're saying, well... Don't you know that, um, remember when the government shut down all these businesses, they let businesses qualify for PPP loans? Remember that? And and they ended up forgiving some of those? Well, how, how do you justify that? Well, first of all, there's a couple things. Number one, Congress, and you can argue whether Congress did it right or not, Congress passed laws allowing the forgiveness of these PPP loans. So it went through the legislative process. It wasn't just... King Donald Trump or King Joe saying, I- I'm going to make this decision by myself. That's number one. Number two, I-, I think to try to equate the PPP loans to student loans that people have taken out over the years is apples and oranges. The PPP loans were issued after the government came in in the wake of COVID, and ordered businesses shut down. Mr. Jeweler, you cannot operate. You have to shut down. You have to close down your business. Mr. Restaurant Operator, Mr. Bar Operator, you have to close down. We are going to shut you down, essentially, or we're going to very much limit you. So those that was because the government ended up doing it. Last time I checked, Nobody put a gun to somebody's head and said, hey, you, you have to borrow, you know, $30,000 to go to graduate school or $50,000 to go to graduate school. It's completely apples and oranges. The PPP stuff was caused, again, by government decisions in the face of the national emergency. It has nothing to do with decisions that people made 5, 10, 15 years ago to take out student loans to go to school. So, I mean, you can have this argument, but I think it, it's, again, completely and totally different. Let's talk to Bill. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hey, let's start by saying thank you, Mother Nature, for the half an inch of rain last night. <laughs> we needed it, right? Okay. That's for sure. What do you think about this? Anyway, I want to do, I'm trying to do some mathematical calculations. I'm a retired math teacher. Uh, How many votes do you think they are going to be able to harvest by making a decision such as that that are going to favor the younger population that are not paying their bills and the parents or whatever of the younger population that have college and student loans, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about. I yeah, think I, it's all about politics. It's all about politics. Oh, oh there's no, Am I no correct. Oh, you're you're absolutely correct, Bill. No, thanks for the call. You're no, you're absolutely correct. This this is about politics. This is about midterm elections are coming up, trying to energize the young voters who have suddenly been given $10,000. Hey, I'm just I'm just taking I'm taking $10,000 from other people. You know, independent estimates suggest that this is going to cost the average taxpayer 2000 bucks. So, if you are I I don't know, you're that middle-class family making, I don't know, maybe your joint income is 80,000 bucks a year. You are going to be paying thousands of dollars, so the person that's making 120 grand gets $10,000 off their student loan. 
That, that's just the, the numbers. But you're right, Bill. It, it's a complete and total effort to try to buy votes and motivate that. Now, I think it's going to backfire because I think it's a situation where almost all Republicans are opposed. And, and most I, I, it's probably 50-50 among Democrats. If you're the one that gets the quote-unquote free money, you love it. But everybody else is in a position where they're going, wait a second, you know, plus what this is going to do for inflation. But no, you're you're absolutely right. This is this is nothing but a vote buying scheme that's going to, in my opinion, decimate the economy. It is fundamentally unfair to the vast majority of Americans who, as we talked about yesterday, took out student loans and paid them or. Um, worked their way through college without student loans or the parents who forgo were decided to forgo various things so they didn't have to take out student loans for their, so their kids didn't have to take out student loans. It's fundamentally unfair for the young person who graduated from high school and rather than going to school decided, Hey, I want to start my own landscaping business. So you took out a small business loan to let you buy a truck and equipment. You're not getting any benefit. It's, it's targeted for people who have college educations, and most of this is going to serve to benefit people who are are probably the least likely to end up needing it. But again, that's not, it's a bad policy idea, but it also troubles me that you have a president of the United States who thinks he can just do everything by saying, okay, we're, we're in a national emergency. Explain to me what the emergency is. The biggest emergency we have in this country is we can't get enough people to fill all the jobs we have. Why in the world do you need this sort of student loan relief? And the answer is you don't, except for the fact that Biden is trying to pander. Now, again, my cautionary thing is for everybody who thinks they're getting 10 grand, I would not spend it because I think this is blatantly illegal. And I I think that once this gets to the Supreme Court, it's probably going to be shot down. So be, be careful. Let's talk to Richard. Richard, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I think we're in a national emergency and i think so because the democrats are in power and as you said they are decimating this economy and they're decimating our country and it has to stop this is insane yeah so the, thanks for calling. so the, the idea is anytime we have democratic rule it's going to be a national emergency well that would be an interesting argument to make to the court but look the, 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 these emergency powers i understand where they come from it, it, in the wake of 911 i i remember 911 I, I i understand that um you i get where that came from in world war 2 i understand why you would have a national emergency and i by the way understand that in april of 2020 when you had the government because we've got we don't have vaccines you've got you know people that are dying you've got the government that then comes in and artificially impacts the private sector by saying we're closing down all these different businesses and the businesses have no choice but to close down because the government has forced them to do that i understand why that is an emergency but the factors and what was going on two plus years ago almost two and a half years ago no longer exist nobody would suggest that we are still in an emergency with covid and yet joe biden is using this as a power grab and that's what's scary because if he can do it for this what else is he going to be able to do it for again 
I think the courts are going to ultimately rein him in. But it's scary that you have a president that thinks he has this much power. couple final texts on this. Jeff, even if the Supreme Court knocks down the student loan forgiveness, Biden will still be a, quote, hero because he tried. He probably knows full well this is illegal. Well, the best indication of that is he acknowledged last year that he didn't have the power to do it. Nancy Pelosi says he doesn't have the power to do it. But that hasn't stopped anybody. Jeff, is there a real probability that the courts can stop this action before it's too late to reverse? And my answer is, is yes, because here, here's what's going to happen. The Right now, this is just Biden's declaration. There will be rules that come out over the course of the next couple weeks to, to implement this from the Department of Education. As soon as those rules are announced, there will be various lawsuits that will be filed by various groups. Now, the people supporting the president are going to try to shoot this down, saying, well, you don't have standing. You don't have a right to object to this. And, and, and there, there will raise some different legal issues. But this will be filed in some district court somewhere across the country. And what will happen is there will be a request for what is called a stay. You know, let, let's get an injunction stopping the government from making these payouts while the matter is litigated and you know one way or the other whoever wins whether they get a stay or not there'll be an appeal to a court of appeals and then there'll be a request for again some action taken by the supreme court so i you you go broke trying to guess what a court is going to do but i i would be surprised if there are actual actually any payments which are are made between now and the time of the election. Now, the one thing that probably is not going to change is Biden, once again, has continued for another several months the ability of people to not have to make payments on their interest or principal at all. That's going to continue through January. So, again, we've got this emergency that has now been going on for, well, by the time it ends, over two and a half years. Yeah, never let a good emergency go to waste. When we come back, all right, What's up? What's the problem with having politicians in a parade? I'll explain. We'll discuss. The Southern Gunslinger is back where he belongs. Hall of Famer Brett Favre joins Mark Chamora every Monday morning at 730 on 94.5 ESPN throughout the football season. Hear the best green and gold talk and don't miss a recap on Wisconsin's afternoon news at 515. It's Brett Favre and Mark Chamora every Monday presented by Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin and sponsored by Concordia University of Wisconsin and Island Resort and Casino. Want to just Go back to something I mentioned briefly on yesterday's program and is the subject of a tweet I sent out. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Here is the the story uh, as it occurred. There's a guy named Vincent King who is, I think it would be fair to describe at the age of 29, um, if he's not a career criminal, he was well on his way to being a career criminal. If you run him through Wisconsin Circuit Court access, you're going to see various criminal convictions ranging from small stuff to lots of traffic violations to, well, more significant stuff. Well, um, the other day, Vincent King was going 94 miles an hour when he hit and killed a 71-year-old man driving another vehicle. King, again, who has a lengthy record, with including various traffic offenses, was a felon. And when the firefighters came to kind of extricate him from the vehicle that he was driving 94 miles an hour in, he, he had a gun 
had a gun with him. So you got a guy driving 94 miles an hour at the time of impact. Um, as they as they looked at like the little black box in the car, what they determined was that the car was actually going like 100 miles an hour, and then it slowed down, I say that in air quotes, to about 94 right before impact. I don't think the guy even bro- hit the, the brakes, but he hit and killed a 71-year-old guy. For reasons that pass understanding, he was not arrested on the spot. Which, which I, I do, you, you've got somebody who's been involved driving 100 miles an hour, hits and kills somebody. He's a felon in possession of a gun, and they, they took him to the hospital and just let him go. And so he may still be in the hospital. They, they don't know that, but now there's a warrant out for his arrest. This happened about two weeks ago, which raises the question of why, why wasn't he arrested at, at the time? You know, you take him to the hospital, and then you have him under guard, and when he's ready to be released, you, you take him to jail. Well, it's interesting because there's a follow-up. The, the family of the 71-year-old man who was hit and killed, they are, as you might expect, they are unhappy, and they are going public. They were on Fox 6 last night. Two sisters, this is the story, have a message for reckless drivers after their father was killed in a crash in Milwaukee near Fond du Lac in Congress August 12th. This was also at 8 o'clock at night. That was the other thing that really struck me. It's it's not... It wouldn't be right at any time, but it's not two or three in the morning. It's eight o'clock at night. You know, you and your spouse could have been on your way to a fish fry. You could have been coming back from a fish fry. You could have been coming back from your kids or your grandkids soccer game or little league game or whatever. And you have this bum driving a hundred miles an hour. Um, with with a gun and no driver's license, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, if I look back at his record, I saw there were various instances of driving with a suspended license or without a license. So I would have been shocked if he had a valid license to begin with. Court records say the driver that hit their dad was going 59 miles per hour over the speed limit. Two sisters have a message for reckless drivers after the father was killed in a crash. Um, it happened around 8 p.m. on August 12th when a silver charger crashed into a white Cadillac near Fond du Lac in Congress. The man driving the Cadillac died, and his daughters want you to know his name. Joseph Papia, 71, had a big personality. He just never seemed down, said Angelique Papia, always just vibrant. He taught his two daughters, Angelique and Andrea, to live every day like it was their last. Tomorrow's never promised, so don't ever take life for granted, said Angelique Papia. It's a lesson they learned during his life and now also in their father's death. Joseph Papia was killed in the August 12th crash. His daughters said knowing how it happened only adds to their pain. It's just reckless said one. Absolutely reckless. It's not needed. Vincent King, 29, is charged with second-degree reckless homicide. Prosecutors say he was driving his charger. Court documents say he was going 94 on impact. The speed limit is 35. He won't even be able to see his grandchildren off into high school or see one of us walk down the aisle because somebody wants to be doing I don't even know what. I can't explain or understand. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around why or how someone could be driving at such a high speed. And then, you know, they go on to talk about the the guy's, again, criminal record, which indicates, again, someone who just has no concern at all for anybody else um, or for themselves or anybody else. And this this is what passes for, uh, again, normalcy around here. A bench warrant has been issued for King. Police said um, he is not in police custody 
why that could be is possible. Criminal complaint notes King was convicted of felony retail theft in 2018. Records show King was charged with misdemeanor battery, disorderly conduct with domestic abuse assessments in July of 2021. He received a $500 signature bond. In that case, he failed to appear in court twice. His latest bench warrant was issued in March of 2022. Did I mention he had a gun on him at the time he was pulled from the car? Why was this guy out on bail? Why was the guy not the subject of active search warrants after he jumped bail? And why, oh, why wasn't he taken into custody at the scene in possession of the gun after he hit and killed somebody? Inquiring minds want to know, but it doesn't bring back the 71-year-old man for the, these two these two women who lost their dad in yet another one of these senseless accidents committed by people who should not be out on the street, and yet our soft-on-crime policies have tolerated this. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I just sent out a link to the story, uh, again, follow-up to what we talked about yesterday, that uh, the guy, stupid low bail, bail jumping, fell in possession of a gun, seventy-one, killing a 71-year-old man while driving 94 miles an hour, um, stupid low bail. How many more people have to die before we wake up? And, of course, Mandela Barnes, who wants to be the next U.S. senator, he, he is a strong advocate of doing away with cash bail. He, he doesn't believe, actually, it goes even farther, he doesn't believe the offense that you're charged with should be a basis for detaining people. I mean, it's, you know, it is really, really scary if people like Mandela Barnes would, would end up getting their way. But, of course, this doesn't get a lot of attention in the mainstream media because we're all obsessed with Ron Johnson is bad and Tim Michaels is bad. So we're, we're not even going to analyze this other stuff and what it would mean for our communities and our state. But if you want to see the follow-up to this story, two women now without their 71-year-old dad simply because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time when this bum driving at 94 miles an hour loses control of the car and hits and kills him. It's just a travesty. And what makes it worse is it happens If not every day, it happens several times a week on the mean streets of Milwaukee, and we're not getting any closer to dealing with the problem. All right, let us switch gears. In Dane County, in Middleton, which is, of course, a suburb of Dane County, they have this thing called the Middleton Good Neighbor Festival. It is a parade, right? Now, we all go to to different parades. I I go to... um, I am a regular, not as a participant, but I watch the, the Menominee Falls 4th of July parades. Always a lot of fun. And, and all sorts of different civic groups march in it. And you have, I mean, you've got, I don't know, the fire departments that have things. You've got the police departments. You've got a number of the community groups. And you typically will have politicians that march in it. For example, at the Menominee Falls parade over the 4th of July, you have a number of politicians that run in this. You have People who are running for office, for example, uh, Tim Michaels had a presence. Rebecca Clayfish had a, a presence at the parade. They both had people that were walking. Maybe, I, I think, I mean, Rebecca Clayfish was actually walking in this. I'm not sure if Michaels was there or not. But but you know, they, they participate in these parades. It's one of the ways for candidates to connect. They had the Republican Party of Waukesha County. They had a bunch of people watch, war, walking. They had the Democratic Party of Washington, of Waukesha County. They were, they were marching. And, you know, people wave and cheer or whatever. So out in Middleton... You have to understand, this is Dane County, so 
all the elected officials are Democrats. So they've got this parade coming up. Parade organizers say, we're not going to allow political candidates to march in this. We are, however, going to allow incumbent politicians who are running for re-election to run in, to march in this. So the, one of the Republicans who's running for Dane County Sheriff, he says, wait a minute. You, you mean to tell me that you are going to allow my opponent to march in, in this parade, but you're not going to allow me because I'm a Republican and he's a, a Democrat, an office holder. So you're only going to allow, by virtue of this rule, you're only going to allow Democrats to march in, in this parade. And he said, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, I think it's illegal. And as an aside, I think that's probably illegal a, as well. But but nevertheless, guy goes on the radio. This is the Republican candidate for sheriff in Dane County and says, hey, the Middleton Good Neighbor Parade has forbidden any Republicans from walking in their parade this coming week, only incumbents. They said, I would like to reach out to various listeners and have them call the Middleton Good Neighbor Organization and the city of Middleton and protest the decision. Okay, that's what the guy says. All right. So what happens is then then people do that. They, they call up and they complain about it. A couple people go on social media saying, hey, the Republicans should show up. They should march and they, they should they should, you know, open carry their firearms as well. The Middleton parade people freak out. Oh, we're afraid that there's going to be all this violence. And so in turn, what they decide to do is they say, well, we're going to ban any politician incumbent challenger. We're going to ban everybody from from walking in this. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, the, it's amazing to me the stupid decisions that some of these local organizations make. I mean, it, it is a parade to only allow in an election year the incumbent, and in this case in Dane County, it's, it's, it's going to be only Democrats, to only allow the incumbents who are running for re-election to march and not allow the challengers to march is just an incredibly stupid decision. But then to say, well, now we're going to cancel the whole thing because some people are upset and we are afraid it might lead to some sort of violence is to take dumb and to compound it. Simplest thing in this case to have been would have been to say, all right, if you're on the ballot in November, yeah, we're just like most parades around here do, we're going to allow you to walk. We're going to allow you to march. But by doing it this way, they manage to pretty much upset everybody. 855-616-1620. Is there any reason at all why both the people who are in office and the people who are running for office shouldn't be allowed to march in a parade? We discuss in a moment. Hey, Jeff, why would Democrats be so insecure to not allow their opponents to march in a parade? It's Dane County, for goodness sake. I don't think they have anything to worry about. Well, that's that that's kind of the point, which which makes this all so much more bizarre. And and then, of course, the reaction of the parade organizers when told that they have to allow that they're they're looking at a lawsuit that they will probably lose, in my opinion, if they don't allow. Um, in this case, it would be the Republican challengers to walk in the parade. Their response is, okay, well, we're just not going to let anybody walk in the parade. No, no politician at all. And then one of the organizers goes on to say, well, we don't want all these politicians in the parade anyways. You know, we have kids along the sidewalks and stuff and, you know, they don't know who these people are, which I think is kind of a bizarre thing to say. Look, I, I'm, I'm not a huge parade person, but I, I think one of the cool things about 
these local parades and the involvement of politicians that is whether you're an incumbent politician or you're a challenger I, I think it is just quintessential America that you get people to get to it, it's a great opportunity for the candidates the incumbents you know to interact with people along along a parade route and stuff I think that's one of the cool things and and, and my guess is, that at the Middleton Parade, the Good Neighbor Day Parade, that if you have a handful of people that are in office or running for office, it's not going to detract from the fire trucks or any of these other things that are out there. But again, it's this idea that, well, you know, we're, we're just, we feel so threatened that we might have some of these challenges that are there. It's just, it's an ill thought out sort of thing. Let everybody march. You don't have to be worried about stuff. There's not going to be, there's no evidence that there's any sort of, you know, violence that's going to be associated with this. Got to be more worried that somebody that's out on a stupid low bail from Milwaukee is going to blow through some barricade and, and drive through the parade. Maybe that's a legitimate worry, but you don't have to be worried that you've got the incumbent office holders or the people that are running against them that they're going to engage in stuff. It's just, it's some of these frustrating things that, that go on. But the bottom line is right now, no politicians get to march in the Middleton Good Neighbor Day Parade. When we come back, don't go away. Does the Republican Party have an abortion problem? Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Mike, before you leave, I, I want to give you like a little like insight into my life. All right. So you, you have you have a text that is directed to you at our, our text thing. Now, I... I, I I, I stepped out, so I didn't hear the first mm-hmm. part of your news. But but here is what, here is what the text says. Mike Sazding, S O S D I N G. Okay, my brother. It's one Mike Sazding, <laughs> Mike Sazding. It's one ninety one, not eleven oh one, with two exclamation points. Now I I don't know if I I I don't know if you didn't say one oh one, but but I guess my my point is. My, my point is, first of all, if you're going to send a text correcting somebody, first, get their name right. <laughs> and secondly, it's 191, not 1101. So I, I have no idea what, what they mean, because if they would have said, Mark, Mike, it's 101, not 1101, maybe. But it's Mike Sazding. It's 191, not 1101. I will give them credit. I did say 1101. Just went back and checked it. You did. My 11 o'clock hour today was so fantastic, though, Jeff. I just wanted to go back in time and, and relive it. Well, I guess the, the point would be, though, again, this is, this is some free legal advice. Feel, feel free to criticize. But when you're going to send that text, first of all, it's Mike Spaulding, not, not Mike Sazding. <laughs> and secondly, if you want to say, Mike, it's 101, not 1101, that's fine. But it's 191, not 1101. I'm just saying... Proofread. If you're going to correct people, just proof proofread it before you do that. You know, if that's the worst thing that happens to me today, Jay, I appreciate I appreciate you coming to my defense. Uh, we've known each other for a long time now, so I do appreciate that. And yeah, I, I did though say eleven oh one. So I apologize. Uh, now somebody says the mistake is simple. It's done using Apple CarPlay. The words have to be translated to text in an outside noise car. It can affect us, which is why. Which is why, and see, I, I go through this with my wife sometimes because she'll dictate this stuff and then she won't reread it, won't read it 
before she sends it off. And then people get it, and it's like actually unintelligible. Or she'll send me this stuff, and I'm like, I have no idea. I, I can kind of guess what you're trying to say, but again, my advice is just kind of, I understand how this happens, but you just read it before you hit send. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, though. Mike Sosting, we'll see you in a half hour. <laughs> so, I'll be here. Yeah, that's, that, that's it's good. It's eleven thirty, um, right? Eleven thirty-one, right? Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll see you. At, we'll see you. At, well, at, at, we'll see you at, at one ninety, whatever it would be. Okay. All right. Let, let's get serious here. The conventional wisdom has been that this will be that the midterms will be a, a really positive year for Republicans. First of all, historically, that is what happens. Secondly, Joe Biden, despite all his different efforts to try to bribe voters, his his approval ratings are are just really in in the tank. Right. There are, however, signs uh, inflation is running rampant. That's a huge issue. But despite the fact that voters are not happy with Biden, it's a question as to whether that's going to translate into other Democratic candidates. And some of the things that have been happening recently are causing people to say, OK, maybe this isn't going to be the, the Republican wave that people thought. Part of it is that in certain states, the Republicans, and they've done this in the past, have nominated people who might appeal to the fringe, the hardcore Republican base, but have more trouble getting elected. I, I think you can point to three or four states where the people that emerged from the primaries are, are not the strongest candidates, and, and Republicans have done that for years. There's another issue, though, that is out there that I want to discuss with you. The Supreme Court, several months ago, really, I think, had the potential to upend this election when they came out with their Dobbs decision. Now, let's go back for a minute. The Supreme Court was faced with a challenge brought to Mississippi's abortion law. Mississippi had passed a law which essentially said elective abortions would be allowed up until 14 weeks, and after that it was, you know, life of the mother. That 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 was it. So there there was it was not an abortion ban, but it was a limit on abortion. And as as I've talked about repeatedly, I, I think that is kind of a mainstream view. The vast majority of abortions, ninety two to ninety five percent of abortions, are done in the first fourteen to sixteen weeks. That that's it. After that the number of people who have elective abortions, and I'm saying an elective abortion as opposed to health of a mother. It's a very, very small number. The Supreme Court could have simply chosen to affirm the Mississippi ban limit on, on abortion. And if they had done that, there would not have been anywhere near the, the controversy. They could have just said, okay, th- this is what we're going to do. We think that Mississippi has the right to limit, you know, elective abortions to the first 14 weeks. The Supreme Court, as we now know, did not do that. They took that next step and said, we're going to strike down, we're going to reverse Roe versus Wade, and we're going to make this a matter for the states. Now, on an intellectual basis, I, I don't think that that's wrong. And I, we talked about this at the time. I, I think I think Roe versus Wade was always, regardless of how you feel about the result, it was a very, very poorly reasoned legal case. But by making the decision to strike down Roe versus Wade, you brought abortion back to the forefront as an issue. If 
and I was going to say, if if you've seen some of the ads this election season, and if you watch TV or listen to the radio, you can't, or go on the internet, you can't help but see the ads. And some of the ads that you're seeing are, are targeted. They're anti-Tim Michaels ads, for example, talking about his pro-life position. So that's one of the issues that's being used as a wedge against Tim Michaels, who is who is pro-life. Now, in Wisconsin, we have this law going back to 1849, which makes it illegal for doctors to provide abortions. It doesn't criminalize the woman who seeks the abortion, but it makes it illegal for um, doctors to perform abortions. And there's litigation challenging whether that's law that law is still in effect in Wisconsin. Women who want abortions can still travel, and this is the point I've been making all along. We, we become kind of an anti-abortion island right now, but if you want an abortion, you can travel to Minnesota, you can travel to Illinois, you can travel to Michigan, you and, and get, get an abortion. So it's not like we've stopped it, we've just made it more difficult for people to get abortions. But clearly, you know, this is an issue, and it's an issue that is playing out. Earlier this week, there was a special election in a swing district in upstate New York, and it was a district that was held by a Democrat, but was viewed as as a district that could go either way. Matter of fact, the Republican challenger, who was a very, very mainstream sort of Republican candidate, was viewed as the, the most likely winner. The issue in that race, at least from the perspective of the Democrats, was exclusively abortion. That that was the only issue. The Republican ran on the economy and things like that. The Democratic challenger lost, ran pretty much exclusively on on the issue of abortion. It's, hey, you know, if the Republicans get in, they're going to impose a national ban on abortion. Don't let this happen. And in what surprised some people, the Democrat won this special election 51-48 in a swing district where a lot of people thought the Republican was going to win. Now, the Democrat only holds the seat until, you know, until until January. They're, they're going to be a rematch in November, and the results could very much be different. But a lot of people are looking at this race, together with a couple other races, and saying the abortion issue has energized voters and is going to be a, a huge Huge issue that's going to motivate Democratic voters to go to the polls and they will be voting on the abortion issue as opposed to like the pocketbook issues. And this is going to make it more difficult for Republicans to win. Our number is 855-616-1620. Do Republicans have an abortion problem? I mean, how significant is abortion going to be? in the upcoming election and what is its role particularly in a state like wisconsin where the the you know the the parties are very very close elections are almost always very close and a lot of it is driven by turnout and motivated people is the abortion issue going to haunt republicans here and nationwide in november 855-616-1620 we discuss Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, in this congressional race for just to, to fill out the balance of of the term. Um, everybody thought it was going to be a toss up, and it was very very close. The Democrat, and it was a Democrat held seat. The Democrat won fifty one to forty eight. 
But the exclusive issue that the Democrat ran on was, was abortion. That that was it. Republicans want to take away abortion rights. And a lot of people are looking at this and saying, OK, well, is that going to be an issue that flips races? Will people be voting on abortion? Does the GOP have an abortion problem? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Bob. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I think they do have a problem with this. Like, you know, one, most people vote as a uh, Democrat or Republican. Now, there's not a lot of um, wiggle room, and then there are independents. But in this election, it'll be hard to get people to come out and vote. And I think having an issue like this that'll energize 50% of the voters and, you know, make this election... um, more important to them for this issue is uh, a problem for the Republicans. I, I mean, I guess to me, uh, church and state, I, I, you know, this has always just been kind of something that was out there on the fringe, you know, the right to lifers. And, well, know, it was easy to like, talk about when it, when it was, but, but as long as you had Roe versus Wade, people could talk about the issues without on, on both sides without having to deal with the consequences because nothing was going to change because of Roe versus Wade. Now that Roe versus Wade is gone, um, yeah, you, I mean, these issues are on the table. I mean, do you support abortion in cases of rape or incest? Do you support uh, unlimited abortion, you know, at, at, at eight months? I mean, right, th- these are these various issues that are there. So you think it's going to motivate at least a portion of female voters i think it will you know and i I think everybody has an opinion on abortion you know it's been around forever and you know seeing some of these ads that they've been running against michael's i mean they're very very effective they're very short very just on this one key on this one issue right and i think a lot of people one issue is usually the economy you know it's like i guess uh clinton said the economy's stupid you know uh uh, th- though the economy is struggling, though inflation, the this this all this also is an important issue. And I, I think yeah. it goes to women's rights. No, no, thanks. For, no, well, I think it's. I, I think. I mean, I, I've said this before. I, I don't think it is. I, I don't think for most people it is the principal voting issue. But it is certainly, I think, a voting issue, particularly, I think, with younger women. Um, and that's why I think Republicans need to confront this issue. Now, I, when we've talked about this before, I understand that there's a lot of people who disagree with me on this. I, I have what I consider to be a, a I think a middle of the road issue. And I, I believe I am where the vast majority of, of people are on this issue. And I'm sorry if you're, if you don't agree with me. I don't mean to insult you, but I, I think I, I have a very pragmatic view of, about this. And I think, I think most people recognize that at some point in time, the fetus becomes a baby and that there, there needs to be and should be reasonable limits on, on the right to, to abortion. And that's why I have always been very, very comfortable, for example, with laws like they had in Mississippi, like they have in Florida, that put a time limit on elective abortions. Okay, if you want an elective abortion, 14 weeks or 15 weeks or 16 weeks, whatever that number would be, recognizing that after a certain point, um, the rights of the mother to control her body get outweighed by the rights of the baby. Yes, it is a baby that they're, they're carrying. So, I, I mean, to me, that that's that's where we should be. 
And I understand that there are some people who are hardcore pro-life, which is, you know, no no abortion ever, even in cases of rape or incest. And I believe that that is a minority position. But I, I understand and don't insult people. I get it. It comes depends on your religious beliefs and all those sorts of things. Then I understand there's people on the flip side, including, for example, the woman who's running for lieutenant governor who wouldn't even commit to agreeing to a limit of 20 weeks on, on, on elective abortions, which to me, as a Democrat, which to me is just is insane as well. I think... The vast majority of people believe that there is a middle ground, and I would personally like to see Republicans start to carve out some of that that middle ground. But I understand it's difficult to do it. I, I think this is an issue that at least needs to be confronted. And in the New York congressional race, they just they, they ignored it. They, they just we're, we're going to pretend that this doesn't exist. I don't think you can pretend that it doesn't exist. If you believe strongly that your position, whatever it is, is correct, I, I think you need to be able to articulate it and, and why and then deal with the ramifications. But I think if Republicans just decide to stick their head in the sand and pretend that this issue is going to go away, well, it, it's it's not going to go away. You have to figure out how you're going to confront it and, and and then confront it so it's not reduced to just like a 15-second you know, TV spot that's used as an attack ad against you. Let's talk to Lamar calling us from Orlando, Florida. Hi, Lamar. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so there's two, there's, two, there's two issues on either side, and I think even though I think that both of these issues kind of, you know, cover both sides, the supporters on both sides, I think there's two issues – in American politics, you don't mess with. For the red team, it's the Second Amendment. You do not mess with gun rights. And for the blue team, it's the abortion, the abortion yeah. things. Uh, even though I think that there's crossover with both of those issues, but I think with this particular issue, that was like the the Republicans kind of stepped over that line in the sand. And I think that looking at um, that this race, looking at what happened in Kansas, which is even though it has a Democratic governor, it's still very much a red state because they control mm-hmm. both houses of the legislature, kind of like there in, in Wisconsin. Yeah, in well, Kansas, people overwhelmingly re- they, they overwhelmingly rejected a ballot initiative that would have banned all abortions. Yeah, right. You're right. Yes, overwhelmingly. So I think that yeah, I think that yeah, I agree with you. I think that Republicans, you know. We're a little bit too far this time, and they, they you know, even though I, I predicted a slaughter in the midterms, I think that they're kind of, kind of regret this a little bit uh, moving forward. Big well, time. you know, thanks, thanks, Colin. And, it, and again, it's it, it's an issue before the Supreme Court tosses Roe versus Wade. It, it's it's an intellectual issue. Now it, it's a real issue. No, it's not a real issue in in all states. You know, many states allow abortions, for example, and, and that's not going to change, although the Democrats are trying to create a frenzy saying Republicans are looking for national abortion bans. I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case, but this is, it is, I think it's an issue. I also think that there's, for example, there's lots of pro-life women out there who are going to be motivated to, to vote, but at the same time, I, I think regardless of where you are on the abortion issue, particularly as you're a Republican, you cannot ignore this. And, and and whatever your position is, you have to be able to go out there and you have to be willing to defend what that, that position is and say what you mean. Um, I, I think some of the ads against Michaels, for example, imply that he is in favor of putting women who seek abortions in jail. That's not 
true. The law does, though, criminalize it, although I, they've already said there's not going to be any prosecutions. Um, but it, it does, at least on its face, criminalize doctors providing that. But I, I do think this is something, and if I were advising Republican candidates, that, that you have to confront one way or another. And you have to say, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. And if we don't have abortions in the state of Wisconsin, this is this is the alternative. This is what I'm going to do. This is you know why I think this is the right thing to do. We're going to provide these services or whatever. But I, I think that is one of the lessons of what happened this week. You cannot just ignore this issue and allow yourself to be beaten up on it. However you feel about the issue, whether you're militantly pro-life, militantly pro-choice, or somewhere like me in the middle on this, think you have to articulate how you feel about this and explain why, and then sell it to your constituency. Okay, fair is fair. I I regularly mock mock the local newspaper when they they write biased articles and, and things like that, or have what I consider to be like obvious, well, o- obvious examples of where they're choosing to cherry pick stuff to make somebody look bad or whatever, or where they just flat out miss the boat. But fair is fair. When when you see really interesting articles that are out there, I, I want to call your attention to them. And that's what I want to talk about next. There is a fascinating piece posted on JS Online, and I've linked to this if you follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 talking about attendance at Brewers games. Now, let me kind of back into this. I... Um, we, we are the, the flagship station for the Brewers, and if you're a regular, I'm a huge baseball fan. I, I, I just, I, I am. I um, share a 20-pack season ticket and have for, for several years with one of my very closest friends. You know, we end up going to the games together. So I go to a lot of games. One of the things that I have noticed at the games is that the, just informally, the, the attendance has been less this year than I would have expected. And I'm not saying it's been bad, but you go to a game against, I don't know, you know, St. Louis on a Wednesday night, arch rivals, and you think maybe they're going to draw 35,000, they draw 28,000. I'm not saying that the stadium's empty. It's not like Oakland. It's not like Miami. But I, I have been consistently, um, I, we have consistently noted that the attendance, there's not as many people at the ballpark as you would have thought that there would be, given the teams that they're playing, and it's a nice summer night, etc. Well, okay, the Journal Sentinel has this interesting piece. Brewers' attendance drop is among the steepest in Major League Baseball, and the chief cause might not be what you think it is. So here's what they say. Um, the Brewers have been 10th or higher in Major League Baseball attendance in each of their competitive seasons, 2017, 18, 19, and even 2021, when COVID-19 meddled with the ballpark capacities for the first half of the year. This year, though, the Brewers entered Wednesday 14th in Major League Baseball, drawing 30,359 fans per game, which which is a good number, no question about it. But that's a drop of 15.9% compared to 2019, which is the, the last normal season that, that, that you had. And it's 14% down compared to 2018. The former number is the seventh biggest drop in Major League Baseball. The latter is the ninth, outpacing most teams who have maintained a similar plane of competitiveness in that window. And then the, the story goes on to now. Now they estimate that the team is going to draw two and a half, two point five to two point six million people this year, which is which is good. 
I mean, that, that, that's for a market the size of Milwaukee, that's still a lot of people. And if they draw that many people, it's going to put the Brewers in the top half of baseball. But they're not going to be in, in the top 10. So fewer people are coming to Miller Park this year than in the past. And then the article goes down to, you know, um, talk about the various reasons why attendance isn't as great this year. Again, I don't mean to overreact to this because, again, they're, they're drawing on average 30,000 people. So that, that, that's a good number, but it's, it's down. And it's down, you know, whenever you're talking about a decline of, you know, 10 or 15 percent or whatever, depending on how you want to measure it, that's that's also a significant number as well. So our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Why do you believe that attendance is down at American Family Field this year? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I don't think this is cause for, it's not like nobody is going to the games. That, that's just flat out not true. But there is there is a decline. And I think that there's a number of factors that are going in. But why do you think there is this decline for the brewers this year? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Here is interesting. I'm going to read some of the texts I've gotten, but I would say at least a half dozen of texts that have come in so far are people objecting to the Brewers' no cash policy. You you can't, and we've talked about this before. The vendors hate it. Most of us fans hate it. You you can't just you know give a beer guy you know ten dollars and say keep the change for your beer or whatever. You have to go through this kabuki dance with the credit cards. It's slow. It's an onerous process. I, I it's 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 bad. It is bad, and I do think that's something that the brewers could control by simply saying, okay, we're we're going back to letting people pay cash. I mean, they, they let you pay cash at the state fair, and people seem to be able to deal with that. But I think there, there's bigger factors as well. Brewers' attendance is down. The question is why? 855-616-1620. Mark. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing today? I am very well, thank you. What um, do you think? Why are the numbers down? I think the numbers are down. It, I think it, it directly correlates with um, our recession that we're going through. Um, you know, if you look at the numbers from last year and even the year before, you know, cost, cost of gas was not so high. Food wasn't so high. People have to, you know, people have to put priorities, you know, in, in their lives. And, and going to a, to a ball game is, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. not high in the list. So maybe if somebody so, went to that's, that's maybe right. yeah maybe if somebody went to five games in the past this year they're even if they're still going to games they're going to two so that would account for some of the numbers. Yep, Definitely, no. absolutely. No, th- thanks for calling. Right. I, I do think I mean I, I do think the economy is is a factor. I think that's one of the reasons that explains the decline in attendance at Summerfest, for example, this year as well. I mean I think people are when, when you're dealing with with the impact of inflation and, and five dollar a gallon gasoline. Now I understand it's down to like three seventy or, or whatever, but still you're, you're paying astronomical prices for gasoline, and the cost of stuff is going up in the grocery store. For a lot of people, that discretionary income, you know, it, it's just it's not there as much. And you couple this, and I'll read some of the text, but a number of people are making the point it it's not inexpensive to go to a Brewers game. Now I understand that they've they've got ticket deals and stuff, but it's it's still 
um, unless you're really, really, really going to work on it. I mean, the, the parking, if, if you want a reserve park, if you want like the, the preferred parking space, you know, that's 20 bucks. So, or more on week, I think it's 25 for like, like weekends and for the Cubs games and things like that. And that's okay. So that's to park your car and then you get in and, you know, yes, you can bring food in, but who wants to do that? So, you know, if you're buying the bratwurst, that's seven bucks and you, you buy your kid a hat, that's 25. I mean, easily, you know, you you end up talking about a couple hundred dollar a night evening. You can do it for less than that, but to really get the experience, it, it's, it's tough. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Jerry. Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. Uh, you pretty much uh, summarized exactly what I was going to say. I I feel very strongly that the article failed to mention anything about the high cost of living now, the inflation, the gasoline, food costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, the other factor that I think, and maybe I'm uh, being a little bit prejudgmental here i really feel personally for me that the hater trade spoke very loudly about the position that management feels the team is in Mm -hmm. that we're going to look at the dollars and cents of this trade knowing that we probably don't have a team that is going to be world series bound and i i Mm -hmm. it's hard to put your finger on emotion, <laughs> oh. but I, I really feel this team has a little bit of the air has been sucked out of this team. Well, Jerry, let me so give you, those let, are the two things that I wanted to mention to you. No, no, th- thanks for call. Well, let, let me give you an example. Like I, said, I am a season ticket holder, and yesterday, two days ago, I think it was yesterday, I, I get an email about renewals for next year. And along with the renewals for next year, it comes with your opportunity to buy playoff tickets for this year. All right. And to, and, and the way it works is you, you, they have a system where you, you pay for some upfront and then you pay for more as it goes along. But the, the commitment you need to make for all the playoff tickets this year is like four grand. That, that's for the two tickets that we have. So it was like four grand. Um, well, I made the decision. I'm going to renew our season tickets. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm going to renew our season tickets. But to your point, Jerry, I'm like, I with, with all due respect, I look. I want the Brewers to make the playoffs. I, I want them to go to the World Series. But I, I think they are underperform. They've underperformed all year. And you look at, you know, any team can get hot. I understand that. But you know, there there are better teams. The Dodgers, the Mets, Atlanta, St. Louis. Explain to me how they beat these teams. And I, I kind of made the decision. I haven't talked to my buddy yet if he's listening. But I, I'm like, I, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna front the money for playoff tickets this year. If they somehow make the playoffs and they get some home games, you know, we'll, we'll probably figure out a way to buy tickets to go. But in past years, it was just automatic. Boom. Okay, charge my credit card account, and we'll see where we go. This year. I, no, and and it's been frustrating. So I think you're on to something. I don't know if it's the hater trade, but all year, number one, the team has been underperforming. Number two, I, I think it is it is the economy and the fact that I do think, you know, games cost a lot of money to go to. And I think some people are reluctant with their discretionary income. The third factor, and the article points this out, and I think it's one that, that 
probably is a huge factor as well, is that the, the brewers depend heavily on, on group ticket sales. You know, they sell those. It's the idea where you go out across the state and you reach out to these different bars or businesses and they say, here, you know, buy 50 tickets. You'll buy 100 tickets. Bring a couple buses in and see the games. That was way down this year. And I think part of that is the result of, again, the pandemic. People aren't back into the workforce. You don't. I mean, just just look at what's going on with business travel and things like that. You don't have that. That's not fully back. And I, I think the the group sales are still lagging in part, again, because we're, we're coming out of the, the COVID experience. And I, I'm not sure how many of the bars that we typically do, hey, we're going to have buses that come down, you know, three or four times a, a year. How many of them organize that? Th- that's That's been a cutback as well, just like a lot of offices still aren't open full time and people are working remotely. So those are the different factors. I, I think cost is a factor. I think the group sales is a factor. And candidly, the, the team... I'm a fan. I, I want them to do as well as possible, but they're they're underperforming. Another factor that gets thrown around is a lot of times the numbers get a little bit juiced up by the number of Cubs fans. The Cubs are underperforming as well. And I mean, I don't know the the game they're playing the Cubs at home tomorrow night. I've got a I've got tickets to the game. I don't know what to expect. Under normal circumstances, there'd be forty some thousand people there all weekend. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Um, Jeff, ticket prices to sit in the outfield is $36 by Bernie Slide, and then there's $10 for a souvenir cup of Diet Coke. Coke, come on, that's that's just flat out too much. Jeff, the concession prices are insane, and you know what is the product that we're putting out on the field? Jeff, people in the Milwaukee area are more conservative and fiscally responsible. They're pulling back on non-essential items due to higher costs and overall market um, pullback. Well, that's it. Jeff, I think a lot of people don't want to invest four hours of their day for a game nowadays. Well, I, but that's always been the case. I don't know that that explains, you know, why you have a 10 or 12 percent, um, drop off. Um, let's see, um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, back in 2019, there was a lot more cash floating around. Now a lot of people are seeing stress in their budgets. And when do we save more? Um, when we have less. Um, so I, I think th- there is a factor. I don't think the economy is back. Jeff, I'm annoyed with no cash. The app and costs are up. I typically go to a couple games but haven't yet. The app is too much for me to navigate. That's that ballpark app where I guess you can still get tickets, hard copies of tickets, but um, it, it just I have them all on my phone. Jeff, numbers are down due to lack of interest with the lockout. Well, that's true. Shortened preseason selling period due to the lockout. Likely poor advanced sales for September due to poor play since the all-star break. Well, I think, you know, that's that's one of the factors as well. And I, I think, you know, that uh, the last few years, the Brewers have been on the field more competitive than they have been this year. I mean, this year, again, I'm a fan. I, I, I am. But this year they are a slightly above average team. Right now there's 15 teams in the National League. They're they're in seventh place. So that that's to me the... The definition of average. They're they're not awful, but they're certainly they're not the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they're not the New York Mets, and they're not the Atlanta Braves. So I, I think 
you know, that's kind of a factor, too, where you get the, you know, the casual fan who who gets the bandwagon effect, who says, okay, well, I, I like going to baseball games. It's fun, and it is fun. I enjoy it. And so normally I'd go to two or three, but, hey, they're winning. I want to be part of all this excitement. I think they've got a chance to get to the World Series, so I'm going to go to six games instead of three. Right now, I don't think that you've got that thing that's going on um you know a number of people are saying again it's it's the cost to go to the games and the fact that you know most of the games are on tv jeff for the past 15 plus years we've purchased anywhere from five to ten game season ticket packages in the club section the cost of beverages have soared and the food selections are horribly unhealthy and overpriced we're not renewing for next year and we'll find another place to spend our entertainment dollars huh jeff for me it's three reasons the cashless system the price of concessions and good isn't good enough we want a winner 855-616-1620 nate nate you're on wtmj good afternoon Hey, good afternoon. Hey, uh, so I understand the, the argument for not going because of the cost, but I think it really has to do with more of the product that they're putting out there. So, you know, 10 years ago when winning was new to Brewers baseball, it's really exciting because they're winning with Prince Fielder and Ryan Braun in the payday. They're hitting the home runs and scoring runs. The question was if the pitching could hold. Well, the last three years it's really switched. Offense is down, and so even if they're competitive or the games are close, it's just not fun to go to a game and see seven hits. So, right. I mean, I think the cost is worth it if the excitement is there. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. No, well, you you could. Thanks for you. I mean, again, it, it's the it's the on-field stuff. Uh, the fact that this is, I, I think they have been thus far, and there's still a lot of games left in the season, but I think it's fair to say it has been it has been disappointing this year. I mean, they're, they're five and a half games behind the St. Louis Cardinals, and especially the, the last couple months, they they haven't been playing great baseball. That that's just the fact, and I think that affects that affects fan enthusiasm as well. And that's what really I, I think at the end of the day, you know, if they're competitive and people think that you know, hey, they've got a chance to make a, a run into October. My guess is, you know, the September ticket sales pick up. They got a lot of home games there. If on the other hand, they continue to play you know, like really bad baseball, and they're just kind of you know again in, in a race to see who gets to go on the road and lose in a couple games in the first round of a playoffs to St. Louis or Atlanta. If that's the thing, it's going to be tough to see people turn out. So, I mean, I think the Brewers have it within themselves to turn things around. If they turn stuff around on the field, that's going to be a big thing. Moving forward, though, I mean, I do think in the off season, I think there has to be a real examination of what it costs to go to these games. And I do agree. I don't know anybody that likes the no-cash policy. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So, Mike Spaulding, the uh, new Brewer schedule is out, and you were talking about how next year it's it's a balanced schedule. Um, you, you think that's going to be a good thing? You looking forward to it? I do, especially if Major League Baseball is trying to grow their national audience. I think it would be nice for uh, people to see the big stars. Well, absolutely, and... and you know, it might not be great for the Brewers because, like this year, for example, the Brewers have been able to feast on, like, spuds, like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, even though Pittsburgh and Cincinnati have been beating them recently, and the, the Cubs that are down. But so the way it's going to work is next year you're going to play all the teams in both the American League and the National League. Now, it's for the American League, it's not home and home. So one year you might have— Red Sox play three games at American Family Field, and the next year you go to Boston. But it's you will get to see all the players. 
Yeah, I wish it was a, a home and home. I know that kind of does away with some of the you know mystique of maybe the World Series or something along those lines. But you know, if you're Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball and you want people to be able to see you know Otani and stuff like that, or you want to build a brand, you need people to see those kinds of players. So now, here, here's the other thing, and I mentioned this to Alex Crow yesterday when he was talking about how the schedule had come out. The Brewers open this year. March 30th. Yeah, don't love this. At Wrigley <laughs> Field, okay? Um, now, I had just come back from Florida on March 30th last year. I, and I remember that because woke up the following morning and there was four inches of snow on the ground. And my lovely wife rolls over and says, love you, hon. What time's the next flight back to Florida? <laughs> that, that was the conversation. And, and I guess I have, for the life of me, never understood why Major League Baseball doesn't doesn't put an emphasis in that that first few weeks of the season in having the teams that play at home, the teams that either have a dome like American Family Field or you you play the warm weather cities, you play in Miami, you play in Tampa, you play in Texas, you play in California, as opposed to opening on March 30th at Wrigley Field, which will be miserable in all likelihood. It, It will be miserable if they get to play at all. Yeah, That's my biggest concern is that you're playing at Wrigley Field in March, it you mentioned there was snow here last year on April 1 or yep. March 31st. There's a good chance it's going to be freezing and sleeting. Like who For who is that enjoyable? Right, I don't understand. Right, even if there's not snow, it's yeah. it's not going to be a particularly pleasant thing. I, it's, I just never, I guess I've never understood it. Cause I, and, you know, maybe you argue it's not fair that some of those then cold weather teams have more home games later on in the year. I, I just, from a fan perspective... It's just you would you would think that okay let's 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 have the majority of the games be where it's at least going to be warm for example for that that first week or two or if you're in like the AL East right when all the you know all those teams are in the Northeast so it would be very difficult you can at least minimize the amount of teams they're going to have to play like you don't have to play at Wrigley you could just play here 90 minutes north with a with a dome stadium like you don't right. have to do it so. I'm with you. I don't understand why they wouldn't want to just minimize the right. opportunity. Well, even in your example in the AL East, you got, I mean, Baltimore. Now, Baltimore's not warm weather, but it, it's spring yeah. in, in Baltimore by, you know, by April 1st. You've got Tampa, which is, you know, plays in Florida inside. So yeah, you open down there, and then, you know, maybe maybe a week later if you have to. I, Toronto. I just, Toronto also has a dome. You could play in Toronto or something like that. Yeah, I just don't know why they do, baseball does this to themselves. Well, right, because, again, then what happens is the games get canceled, and inevitably then you have to try to make them up with doubleheaders during the course of the year or whatever. And selfishly, for our end, it throws our whole scheduling into a into right. a tizzy, so right. selfishly, it's always but easier see, if they're going to play in Milwaukee. See, Mike, they could just hire us and we could solve these problems. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I was talking last about, like, the Journal sent us a big article about how attendance is down. I mean, I think it's kind of self but we could... We could, in the space of 30 minutes, just, just you and me, um, we, we could solve this. Okay, we're, we're going to start the season. We're going to play like in warm weather areas. Um, we're we're going to do away with the no cash policy that people absolutely hate. So you could go back to buying, you know, beers and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, just uh, just give us give us a half hour, and we could be able to solve some of these things. Let the aggrieved make the rules. <laughs> I've always said that in, in every instance. That's right. Well, yeah, and, and how's that working out for you? <laughs> not awesome. Not awesome. But I think for Major League Baseball, it would be a good thing. I'm with you. Okay. So Mike Spaulding and I solving the problems of the world. All right. I want to share with you a piece that appeared in yesterday's Washington Post. And I want to get your reaction to it. It's written by a medical doctor. Her name is Leanna Wen. 
and she's she's a medical doctor. She's also one of these public health officials. She's um she's a professor at George Washington University's Institute School of Public Health. So okay, and and this this is the headline, and I want to share at least a portion of this with you and get your reaction. I'm a doctor. Here's why my kids won't wear masks this school year. For the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, my family and I were very cautious. I gave birth in April 2020, shortly after COVID-19 hit. To protect the baby, my husband and I pulled our then two-year-old son out of preschool. We socialized outdoors only at a safe distance from others. I limited indoor activities to work and grocery shopping, and I was never without my N95 mask. After coronavirus vaccines became available to adults, I wrote that vaccinated people could relax their precautions based on their level of risk tolerance. My tolerance remained low because of my unvaccinated kids. I still avoided indoor restaurants and masked at indoor gatherings unless they required both proof of vaccination and recent negative tests. Our son restarted preschool, but we made sure that he was always masked. Playdates were strictly outdoors only. Everything changed last winter with the arrival of Omicron. This variant is so contagious, with its derivative strains such as BA5 even more so, that preventing COVID-19 became nearly impossible. Before Omicron, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that one-third of Americans had been affected with the coronavirus. By the end of February, after the first Omicron surge, that share climbed to nearly 60%, including three out of four children. It became clear that the goal I'd hoped for, containment of COVID-19, was not reachable. This coronavirus is here to stay. With this new indefinite time frame, the benefit-risk calculus of mitigation measures shifted dramatically. I was willing to limit my children's activities for a year or two, but not for their entire childhood. Given how careful we'd been, it wasn't easy to change my mindset to accept COVID-19 as a recurring risk. But the high transmissibility of new variants meant that we would have to pay an increasingly high price if our goal was to keep avoiding the virus. I began trying to think of the coronavirus as I do of everyday risks, like falls, car accidents, or drowning. Of course, I want to shield my kids from injury, and I take precautions like using car seats and teaching them how to swim. By the same logic, I vaccinated them against the coronavirus, but I won't put their childhood on hold in an effort to eliminate all risk. It helped, too, that Omicron is milder than previous variants. Um, The likelihood of severe outcomes is much lower than during some of the other surges. Over the past several months, my family has eased back on our precautions. We see other families indoor without masks or testing. We've resumed traveling and attending events. Our son, who turns five this week, started indoor soccer and indoor playdates. Our pandemic baby, now two, went to day camp this summer. Both kids are starting school next week. Now that they are fully vaccinated, we do not plan to limit their activities. And like most parents in their school, we will not be masking them in the classroom. I accept the risk that my kids will probably contract COVID-19 this school year, just as they could contract the flu, a respiratory virus, and other contagious diseases. As for most Americans, 
COVID in our family will almost certainly be mild. And like most Americans, we've made the decision that following precautions strict enough to prevent the highly contagious BIA5 will be very challenging. Masking has harmed our son's language development, and limiting both kids' extracurriculars and social interactions would negatively affect their childhood and hinder my and my husband's ability to work. Um, To be clear, my decision not to mask our kids should not be mislabeled as being anti-mask. We would never stigmatize other parents and caregivers for the difficult choices they make. We are also far from COVID minimizers. However, my approach to this school year reflects the evolution of the pandemic and the acknowledgement that avoiding COVID-19 cannot be the singular metric of people's overall health and well-being. Now, I read you that because the news, I've got the story from the other day, the Madison School District has announced that as a general policy, student masking is going to be optional this year. Now, they say, well, if if the numbers, you know, change dramatically, you know, we we might go back to mandatory masking, but otherwise it's an option. And here you have a doctor saying, you know, I'm not a COVID denier. I'm not an anti-max masker. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But, you know, enough is enough. And I, I just I'm not going to inhibit my kids childhood on the possibility that they might get covid, which for most people is now going to be like like the flu or like a cold. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This this is one of the pieces that makes absolutely the most sense about dealing with COVID now. Contrary to what the President of the United States says, this is no longer, this is not an emergency anymore. This is the way it is. And this is, I think, how people have to figure out how to live with it. Now, I understand if you've got a compromised immune system or something like that, that's that's perhaps a different dynamic. But for most kids, okay, mom says, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, we're going to have a normal childhood now. We've gone through this for two years. Enough is enough. 855-616-1620. Irresponsible or right on? We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Just shared a piece in the Washington Post written by a, a, a woman who teaches public health, a doctor who said, I'm done with masking. We did all these things. For the past two years, but but now it's over because I recognize that, you know, COVID is, is here to stay. And I, I believe that by requiring my kids to have given up a lot of their childhood over the last two years, no indoor play dates, no, you know, participating in these group activities. And also, you know, by wearing the masks to school, which I believe has hurt my five-year-old's language development skills, which I think is probably true. So I'm done with it. And I understand that we still have COVID here. But you know what? I'm I'm willing to take this risk because the truth of the matter is everybody's going to get COVID at some point in time. Irresponsible or not? 855-616-1620. Jeff, so they're backing out of masking. Well, how do we know who to believe when doctors have to physician-splain their actions? Don't get me wrong. I've had this approach since December of 2020. But what is this explaining for? If they know what they are doing, who are they explaining and why is it needed? Well, I, I think what's going on is it's a recognition that things 
change and that you have some people who have been what I would describe as COVID alarmists who continue to be kind of COVID alarmists who don't recognize the fact that, okay, we're, we're at a different stage now and things that you might have felt were necessary in April or May of 2020, just it doesn't apply or things have changed now that we're in August of 2022. Now, we can look back, and I I think you can make a very credible argument that, for example, the government-ordered shutdowns just across the board were unproductive, didn't accomplish what they wanted, and created a great deal of, of risk. But nevertheless, we, we did it, and hopefully we can learn in the future and recognize that's not how we deal with a pandemic the next time it happens. But I think this is, again, a, a fair commentary um, out that's out there. And if you have people that, again, have kids that have compromised immune systems or something, or just like if they've got you know peanut butter allergies, you, you take additional precautions. And I understand COVID's not, COVID with somebody who's got a compromised immune system isn't exactly like a peanut butter allergy. But the point is, you know, these are things that you have to, if you've got a child that's got special needs, for example, you have to figure out how you're going to adapt with this. Jeff, I don't think she gets away with this. She was fine with sacrificing two years of her kid's childhood. We knew very early on that these mitigations, especially masks, were not going to work. And we also know that kids never needed to vax. Well, um, Jeff, I think the majority of people have been living like this for a long time now, and health officials are finally coming around as well. That, I think, I think that's the the recognition. Actually, I believe that health officials probably realized this was the case a long time ago, but have been reluctant to say this because it, it flies in the face of that conventional wisdom that's out there. But I think more and more people are now realizing that it's not a national emergency anymore, President Biden. What happens is, is COVID has become endemic and everybody's going to get it. And, you know, most people are going to, again, survive it just fine. And just like there's people that get really, really sick with the flu or some of these other sort of viruses, and I appreciate COVID's different than that, we're at a different point now in August of 2022 than we were in April of 2020. A couple of people were pointing out that I haven't I haven't given the update on the crime numbers in Milwaukee. I used to do it a little bit more, and I think that that's a fair one. Um, It's just, it is almost unbelievable. Okay, so last year, all-time record high number of homicides in the city of Milwaukee. Um, it, It finished with 193. This time last year, there were 112 homicides. According to the police department records, Year to date this year, there have been 149. Now, that has to come with an asterisk because that doesn't have the most recent ones. For example, since Wednesday morning, in the last 30 hours, there have been at least four more homicides that have occurred. Homicides reported on Milwaukee's northwest, northwest, and south side, all unconnected, 
One interest instance, four elderly people shot on the north side, 82-year-old woman dying from her injury. As police investigated, a home connected with the suspect started on fire, and that caused all sorts of problems. Two other shootings took the lives of men's age, men ages 34 and 47, and again, the police continuing to look for suspects. So as it stands right now, year-to-date, last year, 112 homicides. This year, at least 153, maybe more. We're going to blow through that 200 homicide level. Who knows how many, because we've still got another four-plus months to go in this year. Unfortunately, it's going to blow past 200. It's just, it's just absolutely unbelievable the degree of crime that continues, again, unabated in this city. Um, Number of non-fatal shootings, exactly the same, 564 this year, 564 last year. But of course, that's going to up, go up uh, again as well. So mean streets in Milwaukee, like I say, we could liken it to the wild, wild west, but I think that would be an insult to the wild, wild west. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I just sent out a link to posting they have on, on – there's a lot of websites that do a lot of really good work. And one of them around here is – it's called Wisconsin Right Now. And it's run by a couple of former reporters who um, use open records requests to find very, very interesting stuff. The Office of Violence Prevention – which is, of course, the the inaptly named group that's supposed to be concerned with dealing with the, the out-of-control levels of homicide in the city of Milwaukee and has been a complete and total failure to the point that the former head of the office was, was canned and now um, Alderman Ashanti Hamilton is, is going to take over as the new head of this. But w- one of the interesting questions, and see, and this is what happens so much, you have these fancy, these, these agencies that have these fancy titles, Office of Violence Prevention. Well, who, who could be against that? Well, especially in Milwaukee, where we have all these problems. Now, my argument would be the way you prevent violence in the city of Milwaukee, at least right now, is, all right, what you do is all right, you, you prosecute the people. When you catch that felon who is in possession of a firearm, who's just driven 95 miles an hour and hit and killed somebody, and he's wanted with a warrant for jumping bail, you, you arrest him. You, you don't let him go, and you don't release him on a $500 signature bond. That, that would be how I would approach violence prevention, getting the violent criminals off the street. But that's not how we do it. So this is the Wisconsin um, Right Now report. They filed an open records request last February to examine Examine the Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention's detailed expenditures for 2019, 2020, and 2021. Okay, so this is this is where where did you spend your money? They filed the request in February, and this office sat on it. The request was filled in August, three days after the announcement that Ashante Hamilton is the new head. So they file it in February, and essentially because you've got these government agencies that don't want oh that, that those those pesky reporters or the public finding out where they're spending these millions of taxpayer dollars that they get yeah that they we will just, we will um, not fill these okay so here's the story the Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention which is heavily pushed by Democrats Tony Evers and Josh Call blew over 6 million dollars in the past 3 years on consultants administration 
auto allowances for staff, travel, and other activities without an obvious link to immediately stopping crime, Wisconsin right now can reveal. The office gave Legal Action of Wisconsin more than $261,000 for activities including civil legal services. That agency provides civil lawyers to low-income people, but it's unclear how that helps stop violent crime. According to records obtained by Wisconsin Right Now from the city of Milwaukee, from 2019 to 2021, the office spent almost all of its total budget on consulting and administration, including salaries and wages. The office has not demonstrated a proven ability to impact crime. However, it has enriched a lot of consultants who hold workshops, symposiums, and seminars, some of them virtual. For example, for example, It funded a Paint the City Teal Day, end quote, a gift basket giveaway, denim day posters, T-shirts, individual counseling sessions, a COVID-19 panel discussion, parking fees, a shoe giveaway, reusable drawstring bags. Yeah, those people that are out there shooting up the city, that's what they need. A social media work spot and a brain spotting training. The Office of Violence Prevention sponsored a $2,500 table for a Milwaukee lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans group. There's nothing wrong with this, except what does this have to do with violence prevention? It financed a petty cash fund for a group called Perspectives Counseling and Clinical and paid for a celebrity slam table. The and my head is exploding. The office gave more than $14,000 to a woman, Monique Liston, who is described as a joyful militant in her biography and who has written Facebook posts that say things like defund white philanthropy, adding don't ask for reparations, I demand. I strongly support defunding police as a community safety and resilience measure. Okay, this is the Office of Violence Prevention sending thousands of dollars to people who are preaching, let's get the cops off the streets. Um, Let's see. The Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention also gave money to Khalil Coleman, the Black Lives Matter leader who is now in prison, convicted of a failed drug house robbery in Kentucky. In 2019, the Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention paid for $3,511 in travel by Reginald Moore to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York. They spent $2,628 for travel by Arnita Holloman, the now ousted head of OVP, to Charlotte, Philadelphia, and Denver. Another group, Uniting Garden Homes, Inc., received almost a million dollars for a variety of activities. Overall, the office has spent... More than $3 million on consulting, more than a million dollars on administrative charges, more than a million dollars on salaries and wages, and more than half a million dollars in fringe benefits. In addition, they've spent $33,000 on advertising, $3,200 on employee automobile allowances, $5,786 on food and forage. I don't even know what that is. I mean, I know what food is, but forage... I forage. I mean, isn't isn't that what like horses eat and stuff like that? Food and forage. I thought foraging is when you're looking for food in the wild. Well, well, right. Yes, that, that's right. You're foraging for stuff. Yeah, food and forage. Fifty seven hundred dollars. They spent fifty five hundred dollars on office supplies. They spent eighteen thousand four hundred sixty nine dollars on films and other educational item. 
they spent $36,500 on travel and subsistence. I'm sorry, subsistence. So that would be when they're taking their junkets so they don't have to forage in the wild looking for food. Uh, The grand total spent over those three years was $6,251,276. And this is, they've got a link to this. Um, Last October, Tony Evers and the Attorney General Josh Call announced that $8 million more is going to be sent directly to the city of Milwaukee's Office of Violence Prevention. Okay, well, I guess that's good news because now they can travel some more. They can buy some more office supplies. They can, I don't know, have food and foraging to a larger extent, some more advertising, and, of course, millions of dollars more for consulting, millions of dollars more for administrative charges, millions of dollars more for salaries and wages, and millions of dollars more for fringe benefits. Bottom line of all this is, what a giant scam. I mean, at the end of the day, what a giant scam. You've got violence that is at unprecedented levels in the city of Milwaukee. You have the, these organizations that you start with all these great intentions. Here, let's let's have something to look at this. The organization is a complete and total failure. And rather than recognize that it is a complete and total failure that has just been throwing money at every sort of, well, first of all, enriching the people who work there, allowing them to travel around the country, and then allowing them to enrich other people who have some of these kind of like touchy-feely ideas without having to be held accountable in any way, shape, or form for how the money is spent. And then instead of just simply saying, look, this is a complete waste, how many cops could we put on the street for $8 million? Hmm? How many extra probation and parole agents could we hire to track down the people who are out there committing crimes on stupid low bails? You know, what What could we really do with this money to what what what? Shot spotter technology could could we buy? How many more members of the fire department could we hire for $8 million to go out there when some of these criminals burn down the houses? What could we really do to make the lives of ordinary citizens who live in these high crime areas, what could we do to make them better? And my guess is if you had $8 million and I asked you to come up with the top 100 things, I, nowhere in that top 100 would be, oh, you know, let's— Let's give thousands of dollars for in speaking to this guy who's now in in prison after a failed drug robbery. Or let's spend more money on food and forage or office supplies or automobile allowances or the like. But it sounds good. It's this pipe dream. Oh, we want this to work. You know, Jeff, don't you want to prevent violence? Yeah, I want to prevent violence. But throwing millions and millions of dollars in these touchy-feely things that do nothing but enrich the lives and the incomes of the people who are part of it and their friends. I mean, they're they're buying they're buying tables at for a celebrity slam event. They're sponsoring a $2500 table for a Milwaukee lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans group. No problem with the group. That that's fine, but why are taxpayer dollars using being used to sponsor the table? And then reusable drawstring bags, social media workshops, shoe giveaway, parking fees. Give me a break. Denim days, gift basket giveaways. And yet instead of shutting the thing down, we give them $8 million more. And you wonder why we need to have a change in political leadership. 
The 2022 WTMJ Classic, hosted by the club at Lock LaBelle on Monday. Boy, it seems like a long time ago. It was a huge success. Thanks to all those who helped us raise money for Special Olympics Wisconsin, and a special thanks to our partners, Culligan Water, Dave Dre Camp Heating, Evans Transportation, Griffin Automotive, Gruber Law Offices, Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, Selzer Ernst, and Sit Mean Sit Dog Training. All right. A number of people are, are texting on that last segment, and again, it, it's a it's it's an act of, of journalism conducted by the, the folks that run the website Wisconsin right now. And don't take my word for it. If you follow me on Twitter, you can go there. I've got a link to their story. They filed an open records request saying, let's see over the last three years what the Office of Violence Prevention has done with the $6 million that it, that it got. You know, because we know objectively that, that crime has just kind of gone through the roof. But, oh, OK, maybe that's not necessarily their fault. But how are they spending their, their money? And, of course, the agency stonewalled them for months and months and months. And just a couple of days after they fired the former director, well, then the records start coming in. Jeff, do you hear the screams of frustration from all the people listening to this list of what the Violence Prevention Office is spending taxpayer money on? If it wasn't so shameful, it would be ridiculously funny. There is a point to that. In a city where violence is completely out of control, this is the perfect example of why people don't trust the government with our money. Nobody would run a household or a business like this. Why do we allow our government to do this? Well, it's because we get the government that we deserve. It's the people that we vote for. And it's, it's again, if you, all right, let's look at the political realities of this. If you're, if you're an alderman, and you say, this is where we've spent $6 million. I'm, I'm not going along with this anymore. Well, then you're the bad guy because, whoa, don't you care about trying to prevent violence? How, how dare you, you do this? Jeff, thanks for sharing the information on the website um, that took the time to look at the $6.2 million that was spent and none of it impacting reducing crime on Milwaukee streets. Someone needs to be criminally charged with that kind of money being sent. It isn't just a matter of them not knowing what they're doing. It's a matter of spending money for the high life. Well, I think there is an example. Jeff, the violence prevention people should be in jail with that older woman. Prisons are the best violence prevention. Well, there's an element like that. Jeff, and didn't the Office of Violence Prevention just commission an artist to produce something to send to the community as an anti-violence message? Yes, yes, they did. Um, meanwhile, last night, a guy on Milwaukee's north side was caught on camera shooting four elderly neighbors on their front porch, killing one. Yeah, that's going to be a bad story. Jeff, they don't want cops. Don't you understand? Less crime would make their ideas irrelevant. Well, right, that's it. If you actually saw a reduction in the number of homicides, maybe you get to a certain point saying, hey, well, Josh Call, Tony Evers, let's not send another $8 million to this failed group. Um, Jeff, the best part about these agencies, if you do service work and charge to them, they laugh in your face when we ask to be paid six months later. Well, that's kind of it as well. Jeff, I've yet to find a government office that looks for ways to spend every dime allotted to any given um, department. The purpose is they fear budget reductions if they don't. And the sad thing is people responsible in oversight are either looking the other way, complicit, or plain failures in doing their job. Well, it's tough to describe the Office of Violence Prevention as anything other than an epic fail. Instead of shutting it down, though, you got the governor that wants to give them $8 million more. The mind reels backwards.